Hello and welcome to another magical, not Saturday stream, Sunday stream today. I'll explain why in a couple minutes. I am your host, Joe Magician, and we're not that far out from House of the Dragon at this point. I think we're only about six weeks away. That's a little overwhelming for me as a content creator getting ready for videos I want to release. And we'll go over that, I think, at the end of the stream, like what my plans are for how I'm going to be covering it, what you can expect, that kind of stuff. We're going to do House of the Dragon. Obviously, Entertainment Weekly and their reporter, Nick Romano, released a whole bunch of interviews from the House of the Dragon set. Actually, he recorded a, like a 10 minute video, too, which is kind of funny because they're all, you know, makeup, their wigs and costumes and stuff like that. So it kind of makes for an interesting video as they're all sitting there sort of picking up their wigs and kind of stuff like that. But yeah, a lot of information there, some good insights in the characters, some stuff I thought was coming, some stuff I didn't. Oh, is it five weeks? Yeah, it's it's pretty soon. I think I have to actually actually shell one video I'm working on in favor of pumping out the House of the Dragon stuff. The video I'm working on has 18 pages of notes or of a script right now, so I don't think I'll be able to finish that one on time. But yeah, so that's what we're going to go ahead and do today. Some of the interviews were on set. Some of them were written or taken from the video they shot. Most of the main cast was included in the Entertainment Weekly feature. You know, you had Matt Smith, Emma Darcy, Patty Considine, Riss Ifus, I think that's how you pronounce his name. I think that's that would be Welsh, I think. Olivia Cook, Stephen Toussaint, Eve Best. Notably missing, though, from what I perceive to be the main cast is Fabian Frankel, aka Kristen Cole. For some reason, he's not in this. Oh, curious why. Pretty sure he's one of the leads in the show. Uh, they also got some good quotes from Ryan Condal and Miguel Sapochnik. So a lot of good stuff in there. Some things that made people on Twitter and Reddit very mad. Very, very, very mad. But for like definitely different reasons we'll kind of go over those quickly i am obviously oh reese that's it reese reese Ifan, Ifan, something like that yeah welsh as per usual i am not the kind of person to get super mad about stuff on tv and i didn't for this either because god what's the point point? and uh, frankly there's honestly a lot of interesting information the actors give a lot more detailed summary there hang on a second i'm gonna move my script because it looks ridiculous with me like moving my eyes over to read it. There we go. We're just gonna have to move this stuff later <laughs> as we get through it. The actors give much more detailed summaries of their characters and the perceptions of them. And Kondal and Sapochnik give a lot more kind of higher level thoughts about their show, like planning and where they're going with it. And also just like some random factoids. Like there's actually drama about props being used. And we are the most dramatic fan base. We know it to be true. And you know, there's some new stills and promotional images, including the one that I use for the thumbnail on this, which 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 features who can only be Jaharis the conciliator himself, supposedly at the Great Council of 101 and looking half a corpse, basically. There's also some interesting stuff like a possibly sticky egg, two young friends in front of a weird tree in King's Landing, which totally isn't foreshadowing anyway. Don't interpret it that way. Just forget that image. Nothing to see there. And also Schrodinger, Schrodinger's dagger, as I called it. So yeah, there's going to be, there's a surprising amount of stuff in here. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to say thank you to uh, two new patrons, uh, Majorana and Chris Barron. Thank you guys very much for signing up at, at my Patreon at patreon.com slash showmagician. And there's actually a very nice email I recently received from an apparently regular listener that very rarely gets to make it to live streams. And actually, I think is in the stream today because we're on an unusual day. And that is a Tory Nightingale or Maester Tory. I was going to read the email because it was very nice. Next week is my graduation ceremony. I will be receiving my master's in international human rights law, 
seeing as I did my degree in a foreign country during a pandemic. Yikes. This was a very isolated experience to me until I found your channel. A time difference almost never let me catch a live stream. Ha ha. I apparently just have to break my computer to make this happen. But I always listen to them afterwards. And soon I came forward to look to the look forward to them every week. You and the regulars like Sasa K, Maura Lee, Danny McKay, San Rixian felt like friends. Also, Danny McKay, thank you for the super chat. Right back at you, buddy. And also Maura Lee's going to be... She sent me a message. She's not going to be around for a while. Feel better soon, more. You all, but especially you, Matt, really helped me get through my studies and eventually my dissertation. Yeah, dissertations. That's rough. And also went on to offer to have me attend their graduation as a live stream, which I may do. I'm not sure. I, I sent an email back, but I just want to say I feel like we should be thanking you, Tori, for obviously your positive future impact on the world with your master's degree in international human rights law. Very proud that I can provide just a tiny little bit of entertainment and help to folks like you while I ramble about fictional world for hours at a time, you know, and obviously congratulations on finishing your master's degree. I'm going to send you a code or a t-shirt as a graduation present after the stream ends, you know, just check your email. But yeah, that, that was really sweet. And that was a nice one to receive. Honestly, this can be a little inside baseball. I don't usually talk about this kind of stuff a lot, but I, a lot of messages I get aren't super nice. Some of them are just like people correcting some weird detail on a stream or a video I made like years and years ago. I don't even remember what I said, not doing it nicely either, or people trying to scam me to get them to advertise for them on my channel. Or I put on Twitter that NGL link thing, which is like you send anonymous messages. Someone threatened that they wanted to rip my eyes out and wanted to know where I lived. So that was fun. And another person whined about how I don't promote their favorite content creator enough. So, you know, being thanked for having a positive impact on somebody's life from across the ocean and in a time when we need it, you know, that was very nice. So thank you very much for the message, Tori. Definitely check your email for a code after the stream. Yeah. And please, nobody threaten to kill me anymore. That'd be nice. I just make videos about House of the Dragon. And Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, it's really a good deal. Anyway, let's go on to the Entertainment Weekly thing itself. So we're going to do something different here. I'm going to pull up the articles side by side we're going to talk about and sort of scroll down them. So unfortunately, if you are looking forward to seeing more of my sweet Hawaiian shirt today, unfortunately, you're going to be out of luck. I'm going to go into a corner while we do this, and hopefully I won't give away any compromising information about myself. All right, let's see if I can do this. Desktop. There we go. Actually, let me see if I can move this. Oh, no, you guys can see that I have a bunch of save tabs. OK, so I think that works. Does that work for everybody? Everybody can see what we're going to do here. I don't know why people send messages like that. It seemed it was a joke. It was a bad one. And the other one was just pathetic. Apparently, I'm going to accidentally get a lot of people live for the first time. Oh, before we get to the thing, I just wanted to quickly say what I did to my computer because I was posting about it. So I had bought myself a new hard drive. And I went to go install it onto my computer. Hang on a second, let me click off of this. Okay. And what I wanted to do, it was my Windows art or solid state drive that I was replacing. So I cloned the original drive onto the new one and thought that would just work. And I forgot that there's certain things within your Windows boot that if you don't change the settings, it will not fire. So what happened yesterday was about noon. I turned on my computer and then it told me to fuck off. <laughs> it blue screened. It would not boot. And it took me quite a while. Well, a couple hours to get it back online. We're back online now. Everything's fine. It was just me screwing things up. But yeah, my bad on that one. But seems to be may have worked out for a bunch of people who normally don't get to watch. 
So that's how that goes. Also, if you guys could make sure to remember to slam that like button, it definitely always helps with the YouTube algorithm and trying to make sure that we get more people to join us and have a good time and box some thrones and stuff like that. Yeah. So we got 37 likes at the moment. So when we get to 75, uh, I'll throw on a silly hat. If you get to 100, I'll give away a t shirt. And 125, we'll give away, I'll put on another silly hat. So, you know, slam that like button helps me and it, it does help you because you get to see me wearing a silly, silly hat. You once deleted your operating system. That's sort of what I did. To get more, like, slightly more technical on what I did to it, when you copy your master boot record, it doesn't automatically change where it's pointing. So when I started at my computer, it tried to use the boot record and then it said, oh, well, Windows is here on this drive, except it wasn't there anymore. So it kept saying, well, I'm looking for Windows. It should be here, but not on this drive. And then basically all I had to do is I had to reprogram or reformat and then recreate that thing. So it used the correct operating system, the correct drive. I'm an idiot, basically. Sam posted a thing in the patron Slack where she, she said it was tricky. I'd never done it before. So my fault. Do not make major changes to your computer like the night before you're going to stream. Basically, I think what's going on here. So yeah, kind of fucked that one up. That's how it goes, I guess. I'm usually pretty tech savvy. Like I build my own computers. I have since I was in high school. This one I built, I actually helped History of Westeros build their computers too. Me and Ashay went crazy finding deals during Black Friday, stuff like that. But anyway, so there's actually a really good video in the Entertainment Weekly thing, obviously written by Nick Romano his face here for entertainment weekly i'm not gonna play it because i'm pretty sure I'm, I'm gonna get copyright struck if i do and i don't really want that so luckily i transcribed the important parts and also they just wrote he wrote down a bunch of them so it kind of works out so let's let's go ahead and start from the top here and then we'll work our way down so the first thing we hear about is miguel shapachnik he's talking about the redesign to the iron throne he basically gives an amusing anecdote that uh, where is it they had to put yeah, the swords are actually sharp Kind of like the real Iron Throne, and here it is. You have to put green tennis balls ignoring the tips of the blades that line the walkway when not used to prevent accidental injuries. So it's very likely we will at some point get like the real story of Rhaenyra accidentally cutting herself on the throne. Be real if Emma Darcy is a, a little bit clumsy or <laughs> any of the rest of them. Kind of cool. They said they use something like 2,500 swords to make the real thing. So they said they had a bunch of swords left over from Game of Thrones, like the Battle of the Bastards and a bunch of different battles and stuff like that. And they also borrowed some prop leftovers from The Witcher and the Warcraft movie. The Warcraft movie was kind of, hey, that one kind of caught me by surprise because I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen the Warcraft movie, but it is terrible. And I say that as somebody that loves Warcraft and I have played every game since it was since Warcraft one and onwards. That was a horrible, horrible movie, even for someone that understood what they were going for. It, it was terrible. So I'm hoping by using swords from it, they're not accidentally cursing House of the Dragon. Like, let's not do that, guys. Let's not curse the show by using the Warcraft movie swords. Just like get them out of there. Throw them away. Throw them in the garbage. We don't we don't want anything to do with that. Please, God, no. Oh, where'd my script go? Come back. OK, there we go. I think every time I do that, you guys are going to see my screen flash because I'm an idiot. So the other thing that came up is this is the separate interview, separate article Nick Romano wrote for this. And you can see here the title is no, that is not the Game of Thrones cat's paw dagger in House of the Dragon. 
So this one's actually created a little bit of a little bit of controversy because Nick has insisted in the article and also here on Twitter that he talked to people on set and we're talking about the uh, the cat's paw dagger. Actually, hang on. I have my phone version right here. Let me go back to the real one real fast. This thing, this one right here, the prop Valyrian steel dagger that Arya used to kill the Night King, right? They made a thousand copies of these of these things or probably like a million of them. You can buy them anywhere you want. It's a pretty distinctive blade, especially with the, the handle. It's also kind of uncomfortable to hold, like doesn't really wrap around your fingers, right? I guess maybe if you like hold it like this, I'm having flashbacks to 12 angry men when they discover when they were talking about what's the right way to hold a switchblade. I'm bad at it. But anyway, long dagger short, even though we can see the dagger quite clearly here in the teaser trailers, it's come up a number of times. It looks like when Olivia Cook or Allison is running to stab Rhaenyra in the small council room or some side kind of room. I'm guessing this is after uh, Eamon One Eye lost his eye. Nick Romano is saying that's not the same dagger. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, like my eyes work. That looks exactly like the same dagger. If it's not it, it's a weird oversight. And like, why <laughs> would it not be it? Uh, we got some quotes here and I was talking to uh, Luca Nieto from Watchers on the Wall and also Aziz from History of Westeros. It was it was in my Twitter thread and they made the point and I read what they actually said to Nick in this interview. And I think he's wrong. <laughs> like, I pretty sure it is the same dagger, but he wrote an article saying, no, it's not. So why is he saying that? So he said that he talked to where is it while visiting. The set of House of the Dragon in December, Entertainment Weekly, learned from individuals on set that no, this is not the same dagger. It's meant to be more recognizable visual link for fans of the Game of Thrones TV series. He goes on to say, he's talking to Ryan Condal and he says there's going to be a ton of linkage in terms of places you go and buildings you see. There's 200 years before the original show, so there's going to be a ton of shared imagery. Okay. Right. It sounds like it's the same one from that. Pondo goes on to say it's a line to walk in terms of things you bring back from the original show and pass in a different way. I think it's important to have connective tissue there to show people that is the same world and history reflects and history reflects on objects and casts of people and sigils as we move down through time without it being too self-referential. That doesn't sound like he's saying it's not the same dagger. It sounds like he's saying it is. And then he goes on to explain, and you can see here, it's a technology that doesn't exist anymore. Their blades are not made anew, he explains, right? There's not more of them. So all Valyrian steals a fixed number of assets in the world, even at a time when the Targaryens are in power. They themselves, Targaryens, are not able to make Valyrian steel, blah, blah, blah. So they're going to take care of it. So it's believable that something did exist in the original show would have existed here, perhaps in a slightly different packaging. Again, that sounds like Condal saying it's the same dagger. <laughs> Am I misreading this? Am I Have I gone crazy? That sounds like he's saying, yes, it's the same one. I don't really understand. Also, the other thing is that if you guys ever listen to his podcast, Ryan Condal has a podcast talking entirely about props and costumes. I think it's called what? Hang on. Let me see if I can find this. Ryan Condal podcast. The stuff dreams are made of podcast that he puts on with. I forget his name, but he works on Curb Your Enthusiast and they talk about props all the time. Condal's obsessed with pop with props. He has like a big collection, so I don't really understand the point of this. So I, I came up with a couple explanations. So how could what Nick Romano thinks he was told versus what Ryan Condal is saying? And obviously visually that these look like the exact goddamn dagger. So I think it could be I, I don't even know, like 
you guys are pointing out in the chat, why would you even deny it's the same one? It would actually make it a lot better. It would tie into Game of Thrones. There's also that scene where Bran asks Baelish in Game of Thrones if he knows who it's important to. And given that he's a weird god at the point, it's kind of like, well, he's sort of making the case. He's talking, he, Baelish thinks he's talking about now, but Bran, with his knowledge of history, is probably remembering who owned it. I don't know. Like, are, are we talking, is there like a set of these things? Are these like Targaryen steak knives? where they just happen to have like four of them. And over time, they've been lost. That'd be a weird thing to do. It's like an un unnecessary explanation. Just make it the same dagger. I also think the other explanation is that it may not be literally the same dagger. Like, I don't know what happened to the prop after the show ended, but you can imagine somebody may have grabbed it or may have gotten donated somewhere or something like that. And maybe it's not literally the same dagger, but maybe it's like, a remade prop or something like that. Like the, I could understand that it would make what's being told to him true along with what Condal is saying and visually. Otherwise, I don't really understand it. I mean, it's it's even got the same. It looks exactly the same. So I think I think Nick Romano is maybe misunderstood what he's being told because otherwise I don't really get it. Yeah, I'm hoping there's clarification on this because I don't get it. Otherwise, yeah, good luck on History of Westeros, Grey Ways, Tim. Hope we catch you when we end. I'm going to try and not go for forever on this one. Also, yeah, a good point in the chat. It'd be surprising that Alicent would even have access to it unless it belonged to somebody else. Right. It's, it's, it's a royal artifact. It's a Targaryen royal artifact. So it would make sense that it would be hanging around the family for generations. <laughs> yeah, Emma. Imagining weird lava factories mass producing Valyrian steel daggers. There's hundreds of these things. Like, yeah, maybe there is. Maybe they have a dagger room or like, Oh, this Valyrian steel dagger, this one we use for chopping onions. This is one for steak. You know, this is the one we use to cut bread or something like that. And Arya accidentally killed the Night King with the bread Valyrian steel dagger. That'd be kind of funny, but it like it, it doesn't make a lot. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Condal's saying they're rare and it would be it would stick around for forever. So therefore, why would it not be that? Reforging kind of makes sense, but it visually is the exact same thing. So if they reforge it, they reforge it into the same blade. All right, I'm getting worked up about a dagger, so we're just going to go ahead and move on here. There's a lot more interesting stuff to talk about than a stupid dagger. So let's see here. Oh, where is it? Yeah, Valerian Steel Butter Knife. <laughs> it's, it's just a whole set of these things just sitting in like a box like my family has with their silver. Yeah, on a Sunday, Muzi Amanu. Amani, Amanu? Yeah, very lucky girl. It's only because I screwed up. I usually stream on Saturdays. I wanted to also pull up, let me see if I can find it. They talked about the wigs. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, they also had these set photos. We can just quickly go through these. Most of these aren't very interesting. So you can see here we've got, actually, let me see how this is showing up. Oh, you guys can't really see it. I'm move that over. Yes, my background is Jon Snow in front of a weirwood because I am exactly that guy. So you have Alicent and Rhaenyra in some kind of struggle. Might be after Alicent tries to stab Rhaenyra. Might not. I mean, the people behind them look a little different. Don't really know who these people are. That might be Helena back there. Neat. We've also got Rainies. From what they, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but they talked about how their relationship is very much not a power marriage, but one of love. So this kind of shows that, I guess. Aminu, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm bad at pronouncing names. I'm always bad at it. This is actually what I wanted to talk about quite a bit. So this is Matt Smith as Damon, and he's picking up a dragon egg. And Dark Sisters, a really nice pairing knife. Yeah. Maybe that's what's going on there. Leftbringer was a fork that nobody has released. Valerian steel, like a knife set that you can buy is just criminal. Like get on it, guys. 
we will buy it. And they all they all have these stupid, very uncomfortable hilts on them. Oh my god, I would buy that in a second. HBO, I'm doing your work for you. Yeah, it does look a lot like the 11th Doctor. This is very much a Doctor Who look from Matt Smith here. A look of wonder and surprise. So the thing that's interesting about this is not that he's in a weird cave holding up an egg. But I wanted to, like, what's going on here? Actually, you guys can't see my mouse, so you can't see what I'm looking at. But there's, like, some sort of spray or, like, something coming off the egg. On first glance, I thought it was, like, spider webs or something. I also wondered if it was, like, dragon goo. You know, like, in a lot of sci-fi movies and fantasy movies, when, like, a monster lays an egg, it's often kind of gooey and sticky for a while. Like, aliens like that. Spider eggs are usually like that in fantasy. I was wondering if that is. And I was going to have this whole thing about like, why was Matt Smith trying to find this really old egg or like our dragons gooey? But I think it's just water looking at it like in a higher resolution. I think these are just waters dripping off the ceiling, hitting it up here on the top because you can see it kind of glisten. And then it's just water. And you can see down on his lap, there's looks like there's some water down there, too. So unfortunately, my question is, are dragon eggs sticky as a question I don't have the ability to answer? I think this is just a cave. I think this is just a cave leaking water onto it for some reason, which is a bummer. I was getting really excited to talk about gooey eggs. Yeah. Oh, well, a shame. See here. What do we got next? We got Kristen Cole fighting Damon. Kind of cool. We've seen a couple other scenes from this before from the teaser trailer where they're fighting neat, I guess. This is the one I like the best. This is a Damon and his full armor looks really cool, uh, especially his dragon helm. But the thing I thought that was really cool was let me pull this up. Final Fantasy Tactics Dragoon. He looks exactly like a Dragoon from Final Fantasy Tactics. Actually, hang on. Let me see if we can get a bigger one. That's Damon. <laughs> Come on. That's the exact same thing. Like it's almost down to the details. It's exactly the same. I'm excited for He's even holding a lance right there. Dragoons in Final Fantasy Tactics where uh, you use spears and javelins. It's like it's all coming together. I love whoever's on the, the design team for House of the Dragon and clearly is a big fan of Final Fantasy Tactics because that is just dead on. The helmet looks exactly the same. The shoulders, the chest, the whole thing. It, it's amazing. Fantastic stuff. Love to see it. This one, neat. Alice, young Allison and Otto Hightower. Okay. We've already seen this one. Basically, this is when Rhaenyra is getting everybody sworn to her. This is actually a really, really interesting one. And we're going to talk about this a lot more later. This this is actually probably the most important picture that they've put out, uh, not only for the for it being young Allison and Rhaenyra, but also the relationship between them, how things went wrong. And also, you know, people on Twitter pointed out to me and I didn't realize it at first. Yeah, there's a weirwood back there and it's a huge one. Look at the size. That is one big freaking weirwood. And this is according to Ashea. She said this is King's Landing. So this is the King's Landing Godswood with a weirwood. The whole thing, very good encapsulation, I think, of a major part of the show that we haven't seen yet. And of course, this is the big one. This is the one I used for the thumbnail for the video. We have the Great Council of 101. Oh, that's right, Sasuke. In the books, there is no weirwood in King's Landing. It's replaced by an oak tree in their Godswood. But people pointed out that early on in Game of Thrones, they put one there as a stump. So that's going to be a visual connection that the show, both shows have decided to put a full grown weirwood there. And at some point it's going to get cut down. It may be an interesting plot point. Like I forget who pointed it out. It was somebody on Twitter. It may have been oh, who said it. Chloe 
mentioned somebody from her discord chloe of girls gone canon mentioned that someone said that it might end up being a plot point like when aegon takes king's landing what if he cuts down the weirwood as a message against the rebelling blackwoods and starks that would be very interesting so yeah this picture is actually let me blow it up a little bit okay so what's fascinating about this is obviously jaharis the first this is jaharis the conciliator looking basically like he's dead at this point pulling a weekend at bernie's here and some weird very elaborate throne some of the characters are obvious obviously that's viserys the first on the left that's his first wife m aaron also rhaenyra there in her stomach or her son i think oh it was yogi that's right or jogi through the moon door yeah that was right that was a good call that's a good prediction i would be surprised if they didn't use it because it would make a lot of sense and then on the right-hand side, you obviously have Corlys and Rainey. Great Council is deciding mostly between Viserys and Rainey, so obviously they're on other sides. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. Again, I'm not very good at them. So the most intriguing characters here are who is the Septon on the left and the Kingsguard on the right. The Kingsguard on the right is probably Ryan Redwine. Near the end of Jaehaerys' reign, at least in the books, the, uh, they go through Kingsguard Lord Commanders pretty fast. Ryan is very old at that time. He dies. Then Harold Westerling takes it. Then he dies shortly before the dance, causing Kristen Cole to take the, the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard post, a thing that ruins everything for everyone. They would have been much better with Ryan Redwine still alive or Harold Westerling. Yeah. Or Ryan. I, I don't even know if he's in a speaking role. Like, I don't know how much time they're going to devote to the Great Council, but it'd be cool to see it. Um, he's supposed to be a legendary Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. One of the best who ever served. Fascinating guy. Hopefully we'll get to see it. On the left-hand side, this one's a little bit more curious because as Wesley Mons pointed out in the chat, there's problems with this picture with the timeline that they are fudging some details of how old characters are. Oh, you think it's the baby she miscarried? It could be. It could also be Rhaenyra because Allison is actually about 10 years older than, than Rhaenyra in the books, but they've made her in the show about the same age. And they're doing out a bunch of other stuff where they're moving off different, they're moving around different births and deaths and stuff like that to make a better cohesive story. So very well could be Rhaenyra, that could be the miscarriage. But the other one here is there's one person, there's a septon that's very, very important to Jaehaerys I. And that is, of course, the, the best of the septons, the guy who knows everything, the guy who's always right, Septon Barth. And it is quite possible that this is actually going to be Septon Barth which would be weird because he's supposed to be dead by the time of the Great Council. So we're not really sure who, the, I'm not sure who that is. Maybe somebody else in the fandom has already solved it and knows who this is. It could also be Septon Eustace or a few others, but I'm hoping it's Barth. I want it to be Barth. I want Barth. Give us Barth. Yeah, but he's, I know he's dead, but they're moving around a lot of births and deaths and changing characters' ages so that it works better with their story. So just the fact that he's supposed to be dead by the Great Council doesn't mean he is. They also, what was the other other suggestion? Somebody suggested this might be Jaehaerys' son, Aemond. Oh, I don't think that's it. Is it Vaemond Targaryen? I think that's it. The the maester, because obviously this is a septon. But I want it to be Barth. I hope it's Barth. Please let it be Barth. <laughs> Otherwise, it's interesting to see Emma Aaron. And I, there were a few visual things that were kind of fascinating about this. Number one, that if you look at Jaehaerys himself, he is not really going with the Targaryen colors at all. He's wearing white and gold. His crown has no red and black anywhere in it. I think he's wearing like one ruby and that's kind of it. 
And if you look above him, the Targaryen sigil behind him is also not red and black. I don't think so. I mean, it could just be the lighting. This is a very blue image. So maybe it's kind of like the dress thing where gold and silver kind of can change how they look. But visually, that doesn't look like a red and black Targaryen sigil. Instead, it looks pretty gold and silver to me. And I'm curious what the decision making is that why Jaehaerys isn't wearing his house colors. I mean, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants, but it is a curious design design decision. I wonder if it could be something to do with a faith or. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's just to make him stand out. He does stand out in the image. He just doesn't look like a, a normal Targaryen ruler. And also his crown's very different. I believe from the books, his crown is the one with a bunch of different gemstones in it. And that's the one I believe that Rhaenyra wears. This is the one that we see Viserys wear later in the show. So there's obviously some continuity there. And the other thing to talk about is the weird looking throne or chair that Jaehaerys is sitting. Oh yeah, good call. A lady stone-hearted Kimiji. Maybe it's for Vermithor. Yeah, Vermithor and Silverwing were gold and silver. So that could visually be what's going on here. He dressed like the colors of his dragon and his wife's dragon. Very, that could possibly be what's going on here. That'd be a nice a character touch. Otherwise, I don't really know why they went for this. So this is not a throne I'm familiar with. It looks very strange. It almost looks like like ancient Egyptian or something. It's 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 hard visually to say where this is from. I feel like I've seen it before. I don't know where. I've been racking my brain. I feel like this is a prop from somewhere else, some something I've seen elsewhere, but it kind of looks like some like wings or feathers or something like that around him. Like visually, you can see here at Jaehaerys' elbows, those definitely look like wings coming off of him and some sort of extra crown on top of his head. Don't really know where this came from. I wonder if it will even be a plot point or this is just like a cool thing they made up for Jaehaerys to sit at. Obviously, this isn't the Iron Throne. The Iron Throne exists. This this is probably in Harrenhal. A travel throne, of course. Who doesn't have a travel throne? How silly of me. <laughs> Everywhere he goes, he brings his travel throne with his nice cushions wherever he goes. It's more like a, more like a couch. Yeah, I don't really know what's going on here. I saw something on Twitter. I think they when I posted about this, they said that maybe this is a gift from Corlys. That would make a lot of sense. It definitely looks more... See? I guess in nature, more or less like something from the Far East. It, it could definitely be something that Corley has picked up, brought back and gave to the king to curry favor. That would make a lot of sense. I, I don't know. Maybe they're just going to ignore it, but it'd be kind of cool if they came up with an explanation for what the hell this is and where it came from. Otherwise, yeah, that's is this Barth or not? And is this Ryan Red Wine and the color scheme? Interesting image, though. This is probably not something from the show. This is probably a promo image. I would be surprised if it was. It's like framed very weirdly where everybody's like staring straight down the camera. I don't even know who this would be looking at. Yeah, probably just a promo image, but a good one. And it's exciting to see Jaehaerys himself. I wasn't sure if we were going to see him at all because during the Great Council, he's basically, I don't think he even goes to it in the books. It'd be fascinating to see him there and have a more active role. I talked about that in my Whose Fault is the Dance stream that Jaehaerys actually had a lot more influence over the great council then is kind of let on like the fact that he called it at all and who ends up winning and why he called it brokering behind the scenes and him working with Otto Hightower to throw it for Viserys would be kind of fascinating to see and would work against his image like a lot of people consider Jaehaerys the best king you know the old king the conciliator but there's a lot of hints that he's actually a much more ruthless person than the than the book lets on at a first reading and that he's much more conniving and deceiving than anybody may have realized. Like you may come away from seeing Jaehaerys 
in the opening episodes of the show because they said they're going to be doing it linear linear in a linear fashion from oldest to newest so yeah he may come off as quite a dick which would be kind of cool looking forward to seeing that were there any other interesting things here no, that was kind of it. All right. So I think we're done with the cat's paw thing. First, we're going to full screen this one. I'll say once alive, none of that would have happened. Absolutely. Yeah, Hako, they're, they're changing a bunch of stuff. It's cool that he is going there. It makes a lot more sense. And it will be easier to show visually on the screen his influence rather than sort of the implications you get from fire and blood. There is the worst. Hang on. Let me make this a little bigger. Okay, there we go. Everybody can read this, right? Unless you're on a phone. Oh, we got a 74 likes. Remember, you guys, 75 likes. Uh, I'm going to put on a silly hat, 100 likes, going to give away a t-shirt, 125 likes, different silly hat. So you got that to look forward to. Yeah, it does make sense to open up the show with a great council 101. It's going to be their exposition dump for why the dance happened. They're going to use that to explain the, the backstory and stuff. I talked about that a ton in my, my previous stream about whose fault is the dance of the dragons. It goes back to Jaharis. Oh, there we go. All right. We're going to go with the germ hat. There we go wear it in a jaunty fashion perfect absolutely nailed it thanks guys thanks for slamming the old like button appreciate it all right so let's go into what's in the actual article here where are we so the first thing that came up here is they're talking about here with patty considine they're talking with condal they talk about kind of disappointment with season eight and how game of thrones ended and kind of how they're trying to fix it or what they're going to try to do to combat what people were disappointed with they have patty considine basically come out in and he said, when you live with something for so many years and watch those characters on that adventure, I think people start to write their own endings. I feel like a bit of that probably happened and I probably was one of them. So that's kind of a line that they're going with, which is fine. I mean, I think there is probably some truth to that, that there, there, there's been a lot of people thinking about Game of Thrones and Song of Ice of Fire for so long that they kind of have a headcanon and that the headcanon wasn't met causes consternation. But of course, that's not everybody kind of painting with a broad ah, woo, with a broad brush. Woo, brush. Apparently, I can't say brush, broad brush. There we go. There by Patty. Condal says sort of a similar thing that I mean, you can read these however you want. What I took away from it is that they are aware of things that people were unhappy with at the end of Game of Thrones, and they're going to try and not do those while also preserving the things they liked from the main show, which is fine that's a good goal you know i often get accused of being a somebody that loved the ending of game of thrones or that i'm shilling for hbo and it's like you know i thought it was good i didn't think it was great it was kind of like a b minus definitely not one of their best seasons not the best ending to a show i've ever seen either i did a review at the time where i basically said the same thing where i was like you know it was good not great not fantastic there was stuff they definitely could have done better and i wish they had so hopefully they're going to try and take that approach i guess of going back and fixing the things or the thought processes that led to the shortcomings with the end of the show. I want to see the A++++ version of House of the Dragon, you know, shoot for the moon. That's kind of what I'm hoping for. And, you know, the, the article goes into like a bunch of examples, how they worked really hard on the set and like, fine. Okay. Need, I guess. I don't think anybody's complaints with the end of Game of Thrones was how Dragonstone looked. I thought Dragonstone looked pretty cool in Game of Thrones. Like the fact that there's a boiler that's going to be pumping out smoke like it's a Disney ride is not the thing anybody was really looking for. But cool example, I guess. I just know now by saying that I have now caused like people start writing paragraphs into the chat and it's like, we're, we're just going to move past this. We're going to move past it. Now let's see here. They're putting women in the forefront. Yep. Well known. Let's see here. Condal actually says something interesting here where he says that 
The Dance of the Dragons, which is what House of the Dragon will be about, was Martin's chosen prequel idea when HBO began debating what Ice and Fire story to tell next, which is kind of what I said in the I made a video a while back, like how House of the Dragon killed the Long Night. I, I basically said the same thing that George was pushing really hard for Dance of the Dragons. He had written Fire and Blood and also the quotes that were coming out of the long night and what he was saying about it kind of made the case that he wasn't really into it and he really wanted to do the dance of the dragons instead and this kind of lines up with that he said a condol says this particular time period was the story that george thought was the thing that had the most direct if not indirect linkage tonally to that first episode of game of thrones which is actually kind of a fascinating quote and we're going to talk about this at the end of the stream. There's there's a real sense that they're holding stuff back with what's going to be in the in the hot D. And I think it's mostly focused about magic stuff because it's something that should be a big part of it. And they haven't really talked about it at all. So I think this is one hint, along with some other stuff that they say during this, that kind of makes the point that there's going to be a much stronger magical aspect to the show. Then I think they're letting on and they're going to use that kind of as a way to get people excited about it. You know, uh, yeah, that's true. Sasuke. The other thing is that there's basically no source material for the age of heroes that you can actually write a book from that ended up being a kind of a problem. Like one of the things with George with his ancient history is that when he writes them, he sort of writes a lot of cool pitch ideas, but he doesn't really connect them and they're not really they can be connected if he ever wanted them to, but he hasn't done it yet. So if you asked him like what happened like moment by moment, like, can you give us a timeline for exactly what happened during the long night? He probably doesn't know. And you probably have to make up a lot of it on the spot. That's what Elio and Linda said happened when they were pressing him to write different stuff is that he would send them a small piece and they would ask for more detail and then he would write it. And that's, I think that's basically what happened with the long night that, there wasn't a lot to go on and they found themselves just like going like shit. <laughs> we thought that all this stuff in the world of ice and fire was actually hinting at this big vault of knowledge he has. And I think George just kind of went like, oh yeah, no, I'd have to write it. <laughs> I don't have it now. I do have fire and blood though. Boy, would anybody like to do that show instead? Which is kind of what happened. Yes. Plus the story is done for fire and blood, which definitely helps. That was another big advantage. A long night would have definitely had to been making up a lot of stuff as they go unfortunately i think that's i know what ended up happening uh let's see here so oh yes the next thing that comes up is and everybody's mad about it <laughs> dark stains on twitter people on reddit everybody's upset that this quote came back again there's a saying in westeros every time a new targaryen is born the gods toss a coin in the air and the world holds its breath to see how it will land that madness and greatness are two sides of the coin basically and this is not nick romano writing on this he didn't insert this himself there's a lot of quotes in here and a lot of stuff in that interview where they basically go over this where the show is going to be playing with the idea that greatness and madness are not that far apart and i know that pisses people off and i know you don't like hearing it unfortunately i think you're just gonna have to deal with that fact george and ryan combo and the writers and the actors they're making this a big part of the show so I think there's going to have to be a big get over it moment there. You're going to have to unfortunately live with the unsufferable burden of hearing that quote from the showrunners, George R. R. Martin and the actors. I am very sorry for you. Andal also says that he wanted to tell a story about the height of Rome before fall and see the Targaryen dynasty at its very apex so that we can understand the thing 
that was lost when it all fell apart. So this is actually going to be that's kind of the story of the dance. By the end of it, the Targaryens are basically no longer the tremendous power they used to be. They get herb stomped by the end of it. It's kind of like a summer hall is more or less the start of the end. But the dance really started a really big downfall for them. Why does it bother people? It's kind of a key aspect of the memories of Targruel and how things will go for Danny. The arguments I've heard against it is that it's like it's not true that it's not like 50 50 that not it's not like 50 percent of the Targaryens are crazy and 50 percent are great or rational that it's a lot lower, which I guess is fine. But it's also true that the the impacts of dragon dreams and kind of the magical nature of themselves sort of makes them do a lot of things that seem very crazy to the rest of Westeros. But once you sort of get into it, it makes a lot more sense. Like Daron the Drunkard is a perfect example where everyone thinks he was nuts, but it was actually he was being manipulated by these dreams he was getting and it kind of drove him insane. But it wasn't like it's not like a family trait that they have like all schizophrenia. It's like the magical world messes with their heads at a very high rate. So that's usually the 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 problem with it that it's too simplistic and it doesn't it doesn't accurately describe the demographics of the family, which fine, but also they're definitely going to talk about it and it's going to keep coming up. So yeah, that's that's going to be a thing. Get ready for that. At least that's my understanding of the criticisms of that one. There's also a lot of Targaryens that you just don't hear about where George just didn't write about them or they just kind of fade into history. So yeah, that's that's a thing. But he also goes on to say here that Emma Darcy's renewal is the most important role in the show in many in many ways. And that's actually kind of a I wasn't sure about that. I thought it was going to be mostly about Damon. They've been pushing him really hard in the teasers, in the marketing and stuff like that. But here we're seeing Condal and Sapochnik both saying that Renew is the primary character the show is going to be following. That's going to be her challenges, her struggles or relationships that are going to be the main focus with Damon playing a strong secondary role. I think that's one of the bigger takeaways from the article is that they do a lot, a lot of focus on making sure you're paying attention to Rhaenyra. And I'm wondering if maybe they're reacting to fan reaction where a lot of people like me have been like, oh, this is mostly going to be about Damon. But no, it looks to be mostly about Rhaenyra. Yeah, so that, that's my kind of take on what it, <laughs> what that coin thing the criticism against it means. I mean, sure, it is kind of simplistic. It's sort of like the same idea of like Rapper's Rebellion was built on a lie. If you go into it, it there is more subtlety there and there is more behind. Like when you see a, a targeting on screen, it's not like 50% of the time they're going to be absolutely batshit crazy. And 50% of the time it's going to be somebody who's totally normal. It's going to be much more uh, shades of gray and that kind of stuff. And that's actually something that the show left out to their detriment, that Danny in the books has a lot more magical influences on her and her internal thought processes kind of are really influenced by prophecy and try and like the house of the undying. She constantly thinks about it and the show, they kind of let that part go. And that's sort of that's big connective tissue that George is going to use for where Danny's going probably. So I imagine we're going to see a lot more of this. This is going to be a very internal look at the Targaryen family and a lot of them at the same time. So we should expect to see the show playing up that accent, that aspect of them. Then they do a big section here on Rhaenyra and Emma Darcy, Arcee, using anecdote about how auditions went during the pandemic, which is to say the least poorly. They had to like make a wig out of some silly stuff. Yay. Oh, oh, hang on a second. We just hit a hundred likes. So let's open up. What is it? It's Nightbot. We're going to go ahead and give away a 
t-shirt to my threadless shop. So thank you guys for slamming that like button. 164 people watching, 100 likes. Remember, 125 different silly hat. Look forward to that. So for the keyword in the chat, we're going to type the word coin. Put into the chat. And if you, by the way, this is the sort of a thing. If you recently won one, try not to enter so that gives other people another chance to get one. But yeah, type coin into the chat if you want to win a free shirt from my Threadless shop. And we'll roll it. It's 307, so we'll roll it at 315. I'm going to keep talking while you guys go ahead and throw it into the chat. You only need to type it once, by the way. Type coin once and you're entered. Don't have to spam it. So where did my outline go? Come back to me outline. Oh, it's right here. There it is. I'm a fool. And there's some interesting connections that they're drawing between different characters and how they want you to imagine them from Game of Thrones. They're sort of using this as a jumping off point where they're trying to hook viewers who are unfamiliar with them, who have not read Fire and Blood, who basically are trying to make the decision from, well, I watch the end of Game of Thrones. Do I want to watch this one? Are there going to be characters I want to see? And the answer is they're saying yes, very much so. So Millie Alcock in particular, she makes the point that she thinks of Rhaenyra as kind of more like Arya Stark. Let me pull it up. Yeah, the Aussie actress feels there's a little bit of Arya Stark in Rhaenyra, and that's because Alcock auditioned for the role with Arya dialogue from Game of Thrones. This is, and then she goes on to say, they're both women who don't behave the way they're expected to. She says, there is that rebellious and cheeky spirit that they both possess, which is why people are going to adore her. Yeah, there's, there definitely is that aspect to Rhaenyra that, that they're playing up in this these interviews that kind of they they're going to draw on the Game of Thrones characters quite a bit, at least for the initial push to get people to watch it. And yeah, there's a sense that Rhaenyra kind of breaks rules and that she really doesn't like the idea of the gender role she's been pushed into and that she has to act a certain way when everyone else around her doesn't have to do the same thing. There's a from the video itself. There's a quote where Emma Darcy says, you know, she, she is both female and She's never she never expected to be the heir. She expected to sort of live her life kind of like Arya did. And then everything falls apart when she gets to be the heir. Then her womanhood becomes at odds with the role she's been given. Let me go ahead and read the quote. Darcy sees Rhaenyra as pushing at the edges of womanhood. They explain. Actually, let me just pull it up. It's right here. They explain how she's obsessed. Oh, by the way, Emma Darcy is not binary. She, she I'm sorry. Her pronouns are they them. So that's why they is being used here to refer to Darcy. She is non-binary. So I just missed, I just screwed it up myself. So sorry about that. Gotta keep that in mind. They explain how Rhaenyra is obsessed with masculinity, equating maleness to freedom. She is a person who feel at odds with the way that she is read by the world. Even this label, the realms tonight, the light, which implies a passivity of being an object of people's ogling. They say it's like she has a doppelganger. The doppelganger is Rhaenyra born male who has access to all the things that she craves and feels to be hers. She has an amazing connection to her uncle Damon. <laughs> I don't know about an amazing connection is grooming by your uncle and incest and an amazing relationship. No, like not really. Although Emma goes on to explain in some ways they're of the same fabric, yet the rules are completely different for them. I talked about this a lot in my, again, I'm going to refer to the stream again, whose fault is the dance that Renew gets a lot of flack for things that every other ruler in Westeros, every other Targaryen king has gotten away with, like the existence of bastards, the being, I guess, arrogant, even in a way that they're going to be ruler next. The idea that, you know, that they, they are royal and that they can sort of do more or less what they want most of the time. Like 
there have been many, many rulers in Targaryen history who have acted that way and then not had a civil war waged against them before. And people, they're Targaryen monarchs that acted way, 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 way worse than Rhaenyra did. And again, nobody launched a civil war to unseat them. It really is a problem with Renard being a female that ends up causing a lot of these things to come up. Like even at the Great Council, or I believe it was the Great Council, like a whole bunch of people came forward and said that Jaharis had cheated on Alisane and he had bastards all over the place. And Jaharis just sort of goes, no, 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 I had no bastards. And then everyone kind of believes him. But also the fact that there's a ton of them claiming it is kind of sus, suspicious to say the least. So in the same way, like, yeah, Harry gets a lot of shit just for being a woman and expectations put on her that nobody else does. Not Viserys, not Damon, nothing. It's actually one of the things that's kind of interesting is that Damon has a paramour. He has my son and he had a child with her, I believe, while being married. And yeah, that's not like that's not the problem people have with Damon. Pe- the problem people have with Damon is that they think he's going to kill them. Not that he had a bastard child. Let's see here. Yeah, there's a lot of double standards that they're going to work at with Rhaenyra and definitely Rhaenys. Both of them kind of feel the same way. They kind of inherit each other's grief with trying to be a a woman and royal at the same time. Emma went on to say also that Rhaenyra has a real history of abandonment. It's something that keeps happening, and she's also very much culpable in that abandonment. She really presses relationships, often to the point where they cannot continue and then she fulfills the prophecy again. That's kind of a fascinating way to look at her. And I guess it kind of makes sense where you look at the history of the characters that she's supposedly interacts with or has relationships with. It's Damon, it's Harwin the Strong, it's supposedly Kristen Cole, Alicent, gone kind of, where she her her tendency for rule breaking, I guess, and for for kind of personal rebellions leads her to seek out relationships that she shouldn't and then has them blow up in her face. I think that's kind of what Emma's saying here. I'm fascinated to see that part of her. I really want to learn a lot more about Rhaenyra as a character. And I think this article does these interviews do a pretty good job of saying that, that she's not just going to be portrayed as badly as she is in Fire and Blood. And I remember in the past being told like, oh no, Rhaenyra sucks. She's the worst character. She's the terrible person. You shouldn't, there's no reason thinking about her. She's just the worst. And it's like, I don't think that's true. I like, I think even a cursory reading of fire and blood kind of gives you the point that there's a lot of bias against Rhaenyra. And I think we're going to see a lot of that kind of flipped on its head when we see an internal look at her and not like a two century retrospective word of the mouth from a bunch of maesters. You know, we also get to Damon. Obviously, here's the quote. If the gods tossed a quote, that's the quote. How do you toss a quote? It's going to grab it and throw it out there. If the gods tossed a coin for the birth of Prince Damon, the volatile prince of Viserys, volatile brother of Viserys and another heir to the Iron Throne, Smiths says that that coin is still in motion. It hasn't quite hit the ground yet. And until its final doom, we won't find out which side it's on. Yes, very much so. Damon is an unpredictable. He's called the rogue prince for a reason. He's self-interested. He's violent. He's dangerous, unpredictable. He kind of really does not enjoy having anybody tell him what to do. There's no box you can shove in him that he won't try and swing a sword on his way out of. That's kind of who he is. He's very much like a, if this was a Western, he would be the lone cowboy out on the range on, on his own, you know, that kind of person. He also makes an interesting comparison. Also, Eve Best mentions this, that both of them mention that they feel that the Targaryens and their dragons have a very, very, very personal relationship, that it's much closer to kind of warging, I guess, 
or skin changing. They feel that the the dragon and the the dragon and the rider are extensions of each other, that their personalities kind of mix. And that's what Matt Smith is saying here. He says to understand the heart of Damon, you need only look at his dragon Craxies, gargantuan winged red steed. Smith thinks thinks of the beast as a very grumpy, tough, surly sort. Craxies is constantly annoyed, but Damon loves that about him. He's like a huge rabid dog in many ways who only calms and soothes around Damon. He's almost an untrainable dragon in many respects. And I think that's a good way of understanding Damon. He's untrainable. He's a rabid dog. But if he likes you, then he can be very sweet and he can be loyal and calm and, you know, a good dragon. No, 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 says Damon Super told Jamie. Poor George decided not to make Jamie king. Yeah, I, I forget where I talked about that. I think that was in a video, maybe the, the Tattered Prince video. I think I made that argument. But yeah, that's it's definitely on the money that Damon is Jamie in the original outline. It makes him an exciting character, and George says he loves writing him for that reason, and he should be a fan favorite because he is the drama. He causes drama, he pushes boundaries, he creates conflicts. He really pushes a lot of the dance forward just by being himself, even though there's a real sense that like he wasn't trying to start a rebellion. His, his understanding was that Rhaenyra was going to take the throne and he was just going to be king, or not king consort at that point. Not that he was... Maybe we're going to see more of that, that he actually did have a plan to execute all the high towers, but it's kind of his reputation in a way that creates the dance, which is kind of interesting. Do I have anything else about Damon? Now, Matt Smith talks about the coin thing a lot and that Damon's going to be misunderstood, but also he has his own take on Damon. I think, I think what Matt Smith means by that is that he's going to make him in private a different person than he is publicly, that, that he's going to make it so that Kind of the idea here that he's talking about, like how Craxy soothes around Damon, that maybe Damon soothes around Rhaenyra or he soothes around my son when he's not being the rogue prince, when he's just Damon, there's a different person. I'm guessing that's what he's going to get at. He's known for that in Doctor Who quite a bit, where the 11th Doctor that Matt Smith played is a character that really has a lot of walls around him, that he has a lot of facades and a running theme for his different companions from Amy Pond to Clara Oswald is that most of them don't really know him that well. It's like really only River Song that really kind of gets at his core. And I imagine that's kind of what he's talking about here. There's going to be the Rogue Prince again, and then there's going to be Damon. And they're going to be different people depending on what situation he's in. But he has to use the Rogue Prince in order to protect the Damon side of him, I guess. I assume that's why he got cast because that, again, that's the main part of the 11th Doctor, the different layers of personality he shows. The other then we talk about Viserys. Oh, this is the other thing about Damon. He says that Damon's constantly flipping sides in this way, whether that's siding with Viserys or his own interest. I don't think it's about an ambition to the throne and all that. The actor clarifies. I think a lot of it is about his brother. And yeah, there is a massive rivalry between the two of them and kind of their breakdown, in their relationship is kind of what causes Damon to do a lot of things he does where he goes off to become his own king in the Stepstones and he seduces and grooms Rhaenyra and refuses to be anywhere near his wife along with marrying into Corlys and the Valarian into Lena, I think it is. I'm not, it's interesting that Matt Smith is saying that it's not just ambition to the throne because I sort of thought Damon was a power hungry person. I'm kind of curious what this means and what they're going to do with this. Like, is he trying to get the throne not for itself, but to piss off a series? Is it like, is it something like that? I don't, I don't, it's hard to parse this, but I'm excited to see what it means. That's a year. We also have Viserys, quote unquote, Viserys' coin has already landed. Yeah, this is kind of 
This is a different side of Viserys than you see from the books. The books largely portrays Viserys as a high five and party animal, everybody's best friend kind of guy. And he's portrayed as not serious. And that's usually the, the thing his detractors use against him in the book and outside that it doesn't seem like he really has a plan for the Iron Throne. He's just kind of trying to keep it all together and make everybody his friend and do that kind of thing. But you can see here that Patty Considine has a different take on him, that he says that commanding dragons and the potential to, to destroy the world, the idea of responsibility, the mantra he had for him was that he's a good man, a bad king, because he just wants to please people and keep the peace. But also Viserys has an ego. He's got a great tragedy in his life, but there's a part of him that's going, how am I going to remember it in hundreds of years? They don't remember peaceful kings. They don't remember good people. They remember warriors. They remember tyrants. And that's an interesting take on Viserys that he's seeing his life come to an end and he's kind of wondering what it's all been about. If he's been successful as a king, what kind of world is he going to leave behind in his wake? And also Condal goes on to say, nobody alive in the story has seen a war or meaningful conflict. Yes, there have been skirmishes and tournaments, but we're living in a society based on conflicts for power, we're watching a period of time where every man has been trained for battle since birth, but battle doesn't happen. The pent up energy leaks out between the cracks and starts to wear in itself. We almost need the release of war in order to keep the whole thing from boiling over. And I think this is kind of talking about that after the death of Magor the Cruel and Jaehaerys's reign afterwards, that everybody's trying to do everything they can to avoid being the next Magor and creating a next, another civil war and rebellion, particularly between the faith and the Iron Throne. And Considine or Viserys has been trying to sort of weave this path between like Jaehaerys and Alison and not really sure where he's going. And also the idea that he's going to be forgotten as a, as a king, which is, I'm curious how that will manifest. What sort of decisions will that make him? Like, I, I almost wonder if the idea of the ego and the idea of making Rhaenyra his, his heir, I wonder if that's sort of ego that he wants to be remembered as the one that, like, changed this thing for Westeros, became the king of the first queen and did something like that. That'd be kind of interesting. Not really sure. Again, I'm curious about this. They've also shown a lot of pictures of Viserys, and he never, all the pictures they're using of him is not him as his reputation. They're all him kind of looking kind of sad and introspective. Obviously, they're promo pictures, but it definitely seems like they're going to they're going to make him a more haunted character than I think is let on. Let's see here. The next thing we get from the article itself is they talk a lot about Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook and also Millie Alcock and oh, what is you guys in the oh, there it is. Emily Carey. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to roll the thing. OK, we're going to go ahead and roll it. Kevin Warner. There you go, buddy. Congratulations, you won yourself a free t-shirt from my Thriller Shop. If you could send me an email at askjoemagician at gmail.com, or you can send me a DM on Twitter, and I'll send you a code, and you, sir, can get yourself a free shirt. Well, actually, $20 off whenever you want to buy from my shop. But it happens to be the same amount as a shirt. I think there's a sale going on, though, so you may be able to get more. So yeah, the next major thing they talk about is the relationship between Allison and Rainier, and how this will be kind of the core of the show itself. They also tell stories up here about how the different actresses basically really bonded and found themselves to be have a lot of chemistry between themselves in different ways. Actually, Olivia Cook and Emma Darcy sound like they kind of have crushes on each other a little bit, a little bit, just just a little. But you can see here that when they talk about Allison, they're going to much like Rhaenyra, the show's going to do a lot of effort to make her 
much more relatable as a person than she is in fire and blood where again like Rhaenyra, she's sort of portrayed as this shrewish stepmother or shrewish what's the what's the word for it queen regent kind of figure who's a terrible person and it's the stupid fight between two of them that caused the dance and they're going to try and really hard to work against that you can see here there's a preconceived motion that she's always scheming you can always you can understand why cook adds the woman whispering into a powerful man's ear has never been positively written about so that was fun to try and find the nuance condal confirms also the house of the dragon which he hopes will be a companion piece of the book will be the objective account of the dance of the dragons means uh, olivia cook goes on to say you can take a strand of history and then completely embellish it to paint the fuller picture so yes there's going to be i imagine we're going to go into this thinking very a lot of fans are going to think very very low of allison as a character and you're probably going to come away with a lot more empathy and sympathy for her which is fair i i talked about that in previous videos too that allison kind of gets pigeonholed by Otto and kind of forced into a lot of things that she probably wouldn't have done on her own and the, they also make a, a lot of points about what she's like as a person hermetically sealed in the kingdom with her dad unyielding love for Otto after the death of her mother let's see here what else do they say she's quite an anxious rule follower in comparison to how free and mysterious Rhaenyra is when you realize that you haven't been nurtured in the way Rhaenyra has her best friend that she's seen grow up have everything given to her and have the unbridled love of her father that's a real tough pill to swallow so Otto is also going to be kind of abusive to Allison that he's very I think he's going to probably going to be the kind of guy that nothing's ever good enough for him that he always is pushing Allison for more and I think if you read these quotes about what Allison is like as a child and when then she grows up I think they're going to make her a lot like Sansa or a lot like Marjorie Tyrell maybe a lot more like Sansa like the idea of being hermetically sealed in the kingdom and an anxious rule follower comparison to how free and mysterious Rhaenyra is that sounds like the relationship between Arya and Sansa and I think that's probably going to be where they're starting from I mean even here they mentioned that Otto Hightower is in a manner akin to the Game of Thrones Littlefinger I think that's probably right I think you're probably going to see Allison as kind of like an alt version of Sansa if she was raised by Littlefinger and boy would that that would suck as a character Littlefinger is has a terrible influence on Sansa in the books and the show and this is going to be just stop a hundred percent all the way. oh hang on a second and I do this give me one second here I'm going to try and change something I should be able to redirect when the stream ends usually I try and if there's somebody live I try to throw it to them or if Rio Westeros is but I'm going to try and throw this to oh it's not working damn that's the thing I was talking about. I'm going to see if I, before the end of the stream, I can get us to redirect the history of Westeros. But yeah, very much Sansa versus Arya. They're going to take that basic dynamic for Alicent and Rhaenyra and obviously expand them in their own ways. They're their own characters. They're not literally Arya. They're not literally Sansa. But I think that's kind of their starting blocks for them, especially as their children. Like that is kind of the relationship between the two of them. Sansa is the uh, goody goody who does all the things she's supposed to and Arya is the rebellious one who runs around and they resent each other for that where Sansa gets tons of praise for being everything that Septimordain wants her to be and that annoys Arya and then Arya gets away with everything that Sansa would never be allowed to because Ned finds her mischievousness adorable and that annoys Sansa that kind of thing. 
should be the same sort of thing. Let's see here. What else? They also mentioned that the characters are going to be best friends as children. When we're talking about, where's the picture? This one here with Emily Carey and Millie Alcock. When they're teenagers, they're going to be the closest, bestest of friends and their relationship's going to break down over time. And it's kind of, you can sort of piece it together. What's going to be the thing that causes that? And it's going to be when Rainier is officially named heir and how that totally changes the dynamic because of how much Otto Hightower hates that decision and how much Allison is really influenced by him and how much he kind of pushes her to play the Game of Thrones. And if you play the Game of Thrones as Allison, it means you're going to have to fight against your friend in Rhaenyra, which is going to create obviously a ton of conflict, internal and external. Like, I imagine it's going to be very hard for Allison to be convinced to be the first to do anything against her. But eventually, obviously, Otto does it. He does get her there, but it's not going to be easy. And it's going to be very personally damaging for Allison as a person. Let's see here. What else we got? We have Otto Hightower. He's described as a there we go. He's an astute, high functioning political creature. He knows the machinations of court better than anyone. He kind of has his own CT CTV system in terms of why did it just jump on me in terms of knowledge of what's going on at any place with whom at any time. So again, this is Littlefinger. This sounds exactly like Littlefinger. He's ruthless, but he struggles with some of the decisions he is forced to make as Hand of the King. So this is Littlefinger with power. That's kind of what they're going for here. Yay. That's one of the things that sort of keeps him in check in court in Game of Thrones is that he doesn't have holdings. He doesn't have the backing of anybody. He's kind of on his own. But this Otto Hightower, he has the backing of the Hightower itself. And he has grandchildren who are dragon riders. So it's like the most frightening version of Littlefinger, one who could actually push what he wants onto the rest of Westeros. Not going to be okay. Give me one sec. I'm going to be right back. There'll have been other okay, people. That did not work. Kind of bummer. Pie um, as well. We're, we're much, we're much earlier in that right, cool. phase. Remember, there's four more say. likes. I'm going to put on a silly there's, hat. there's plenty of other examples like um, that where there's just... Games, right, books, so role-playing games, and computer games. Sometimes, sometimes multiple computer games. Sometimes other side games. Yeah, and it just not a lot here about auto. Kind of we take for granted how easy very the much is. A little fast <laughs> fire compared very to much, other um, fandoms. Going to be manipulated. Star Wars, like Star Wars, eliminated like. Oh, you can hear hundred. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. Don't copyright claim me as these. I did. Although maybe I have to stream their content. <laughs> just stream it. We'll, we're just we'll watch it and commentate on it as we go. Let's see here. So, oh yeah, then we get to the Valarians. What we hear here is very interesting. Emma Eve Best talks about the line about how men would rather put the realms of the torch than see a woman send the Iron Throne. Right there. Yep, that's the life of Rainies. There's definitely a sense that Eve Best is talking about, and also you hear from quotes about her in this article that the idea is going to be that Rainies really is the queen who never was and not in the sense that she got passed over but she would have been a much better queen than Viserys was king there's a quote here where is it where are you oh yeah here it is Eve Best saying she's able to navigate this incredibly dense political environment with such finesse calm and effortless grace it's impossible to deny that underneath there is the sword in her heart of that core wound which is okay come back where is where did it just go? It's a combination of all kinds of things. That skill is something that taps into the wild part of her. It can never be denied. So yeah, there's going to be a, a real sense that as you're watching, the war is going to be Rhaenyra versus Aegon, but you're going to very quickly probably realize that, oh, Rhaenys is kind of the power behind Rhaenys. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. I forgot that the way this is set up, that anything that comes on my audio will be broadcast. That's how it works with the, the intro video. 
That's how I have it set up. So that kind of sucks. Effectively, it's about the dissolution of the patriarchy of this system that has been going for hundreds and hundreds of years. Best says Rhaenys' relationship with Rhaenyra is very complicated. It's an element of mentorship. There's also an element of other things that go along with that, potentially friendship or sympathy. At the same time, there's all kinds of other much darker things, especially at the beginning. I think Rhaenys feels that Rhaenyra needs some taking down a peg or two. Yeah, there's going to be some annoyance for Rhaenys that this war is going to start to put Rhaenyra on the Iron Throne and Rhaenys still thinks it should be her. But eventually her and Corlys do get in line because it does benefit their legacy, that kind of thing. We also hear a good bit about uh, Corlys himself. Let's see here. Pull him up there. Uh, there's going to be a weird thing that the Stephen Tussall said in the, the video, the 10 minute interview thing, is that basically he claims that the Valerians are the oldest Valerian house in Westeros. And he tries to use that to seem more impressive versus the Targaryens, which is funny because not true. Like the Celtigars exist. But also, it's very much the idea that I've talked about this before in the Sea Snake stream itself. That I think I did with Bookshelf Stud that there's a real sense that Corlys is trying to make the Valarians into a great house. He doesn't want to play second fiddle to Targaryens anymore. He's tired of living in the shadow of their dragon wings. He's tired of just being seen as a wealthy ship captain. He wants the Valarians to be the next Lannisters. He wants them to be the next gardeners. He wants them to be the next Hightowers. And he's going to do whatever he can to make sure that happens, even if he has to fictionalize the history of his house, I guess. I think it's kind of fascinating that way because I talked about earlier how there's not really a lot of information about the Age of Heroes that you could make a show out of. But if you're talking about Corley's Valarion, he's probably the closest we're going to see to somebody like Land the Clever or Durin Durandin or Brandon Stark. These kind of legendary figures and how they turned what were previously kind of nobodies into a major force in Westeros going forwards. I mean, spoiler, it doesn't end up working out for the Valarians. By the time we get to the main story, they're basically back to being nobody pirates and traitors. But very, very interesting. Going to be seeing him do that. Quote from Stephen is no one wants to F with him. The Targaryens have dragons, but they still don't want to lose the whole ocean, which he commands. He knows he has power. He knows that they need him. He's this fearless guy. He's very rich now. He likes people to see that he's rich. But you as the actor have to find a, find a way to humanize it. And this is the one of the bigger surprises from the, the article itself and the interviews is that he sees Corlys as Tywin Lannister. It says here he Toussaint came to think of Corlys more like Tywin Lannister, in part because he auditioned for the role with the lines of Charles Dance, but also because the actor saw the sea snake as ruthlessly dedicated to his family. Let me see if we can find that. Okay. It doesn't always come through in the smoothest ways. Sea Snake is a father and wants what he thinks is best for his children. Toussaint explains before clarifying his character is still much more at home on the battlefield or at sea. It's much simpler then. He says, if you don't do it right, you die. That's it. There's no gray area. Well, there is a gray area. It's the awesome YouTube channel. But of course, he has this huge ambition, this idea of legacy. It's a big idea for him. He also goes on to stay, say how much Corlys actually adores Rhaenys, that it's not a power marriage. The sea snake and his wife are the ones you root for because they're actually about love, which is a really cool insight into their characters. I think at least I previously and you don't really get a sense of how much Rhaenys and Corlys really liked each other in Fire and Blood. It really does seem like Corlys power married to Rhaenys in order to create a faction to put her on the throne. 
And instead, we're going to see very much that it's that there's real affection between them and that it was a marriage of love that also happened to work for their, uh, their political goals. So, uh, yeah, good point by Sasuke in the chat in the interview in the article. Olivia Cook. Yeah, she did auditioned on Cersei's lines. They did that a lot. You can use who they auditioned for as basically the oh, silly hat number two time. Here we go. I think I have to sit up a little bit more for this one. There we go. Perfect. Absolutely nailed it. Hawaiian shirt and a wizard hat. This is what we're about. Yeah, you can look at who they auditioned with their lines for and try and get a sense of where the show's starting off with them, but will diverge from pretty wildly. Like I said that Rhaenyra is is like Arya and that Alicent is like Sansa, but that's kind of like the base. And then they change pretty wildly. Didn't Coralise have two bastards? Maybe. Yes. It, he he claims they're Lane. It's kind of unclear. I We'll see. But you can also love your wife and apparently cheat on them, I guess. Maybe those aren't separate things sometimes. Oh, let's see here. What else? What else? What else? Oh, yeah. So the thing about Rhaenys is it's, it's a common idea in George's writing that the right person never ends up in power or ends up on the Iron Throne. He usually has them off to the side, like denied in some way and uses that to create drama. So the idea that Rhaenys should have should be queen based on merit is going to be key to her character. And, you know, it's, it's again, very common through his writing. He loves to deny the person who would do the best job, the job itself, so that the job gets done poorly. So it creates good drama for him to work with. So the other thing that I talked about at the start of the stream that everyone got mad about, especially on Reddit, that was a that was a fun day modding is everybody got mad and still are mad about this quote about the decision to make the Valarian black. So here's the quote, with the exceptions of a few, including Rhaenys as a Targaryen, the Valarians of the show are reimagined from the books as wealthy black rulers marked by flowing silver dreads, which address another criticism of Game of Thrones, the overwhelming whiteness of Westeros. Condal has an honest response for why he and Sapochnik made the character change. It was very important for Miguel and I to create a show that was not a bunch of white people on the screen. We wanted to find a way to put diversity in the show. We didn't want to do it in a way that felt like it was an afterthought or at worst tokenism. It goes on to say the solution rose out of Condal's conversations with Martin. The land of old Valyria, name checked among Daenerys's many descriptors on Game of Thrones, was once a mythic, wondrous empire of dragons and Essos that fell to ruin. According to Condal, Martin toyed early on with the idea of depicting the Valyrians as black conquerors who came to Westeros from the West. The image stuck with the new showrunner. The change would help further heighten the questions of legitimacy that arise in House of the Dragon amid the school of succession. Once we had the idea, it just felt like everything fell into place. So. What they're talking about with the questions of legitimacy is that obviously in Fire and Blood, one of the things that makes everybody realize other than, you know, their behavior that Rhaenyra's sons are not Lenors, they're Harwin Strongs, is that they all look like Harwin Strong. None of them look like Lenor. None of them look like Rhaenyra. Everyone puts two and two together and go like, oh, these are Harwin's kids. You know, the guy that's always with her and that she's always sleeping with and that's her sworn shield. Oh, yeah, duh. Of course it is. I mean, that's that's kind of the point of that story. Everyone knew they weren't Lenors before they were born, mostly because Lenor is gay and him and Rhaenyra had nothing to do with each other. But uh, so the thing that people are mad about is that they didn't give a lore, a lore reason for why the Valarian are black in this. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, I don't care. Make up whatever headcanon you want. Really, just like cool your jets. It's an adaptation. Things are going to change from the source material. And that's like a good thing. I wouldn't really want to watch a show that was just somebody reading Fire and Blood as it exists. 
Things are going to change no matter what adaptation you were talking about. If you want to say there's a summer islander in there somewhere, or there's some magical blood reason for why skin colors aren't the way you think they should work, even though they do work that way, fine, whatever. I don't care. Just get over it and like, yeah, stop being so mad about it, I guess. Also, there's definitely a thing going on where I'm just going to say there's a lot of like right wing reactionary folks that are trying to use this along with stuff that's going on in the rings of power, also in the wheel of time and other series where they've made more diverse castings, where they're trying to use the pedantic detail obsession nature of these fancy book fans to try and help them win their stupid culture war. So don't really help them. Like don't, it, it's not, it's really not a big a deal as people are making it out. It doesn't really change much. If it hurts your immersion, tough. If you need a head cannon to get you there, go for it. Yeah. And also, like, as we go into the show, I'm just going to say this as a as a start to it. Like, I'm just going to be banning people left and right if from the channel. If you decide to make your essay in my comment sections about, like, how it's forced diversity and it's wokeness gone awry, you're just going to get the fuck out of here. So that's where we are in that. Everybody got mad at it. And, you know. Get ready for that. Now, let's see here. What else did I want to talk about? So one more section. Then I got a few questions from Twitter I want to talk about. I hope that was fair warning because it's definitely I'm I'm not going to put up with it. So if you want a channel where somebody gets very, very mad about the changes of the Valarians in their skin color, this is not the channel for you. And I don't really care why you think that's wrong. Don't care. So the other thing that's that's not really at the forefront of this and and it's something that's hinted at. And something I'm really excited about is sort of where magic is going to be showing up in the show versus fire and blood. I've talked about this in previous streams that the idea of magic in fire and blood is really, really, really toned down versus the rest of song of ice and fire. Like it basically does not exist. Despite the fact that when we see a song of ice and fire, we hear from different characters that as soon as the dragons are born, magic came back into the world. But as far as fire and blood is concerned, at least for the dance of the dragons, there's no magic. Like nothing happens. There's like weird little instances where you think it could be, but nobody's really detailing it. And part of that is sort of it's sort of the way that Martin wrote it, that he used maesters and maester sources in order to tell the history. It's not a direct POV. It's a historical one. So as such, maesters in general try to downplay magic or they they have a really high bar for it being true, but it should definitely be there. And there's kind of some little hints and stuff like that we're going to see a lot more of it obviously the the weirwood and the godswood at king's landing i mean as a fan of game of thrones you're obviously going to recognize the eye connecting that to bran and how the weirwoods and the three-eyed crow and the children of the forest that they're going to have eyes in king's landing and it's going to be hard not to see rhaenyra in front of a weirwood and not think about what bran did to daenerys and also how he manipulated john at the end of it there's going to be an idea that the Old gods are watching King's Landing, and that's going to be some. It's going to be a plot point. Like, there's no reason to put the weirwood there if you're not going to do that. So, it's also a huge weirwood. It's a massive tree. So, I don't know how they're going to include that, but it should be a plot point at some point. Also, the idea that the Blackwoods are going to be major characters, probably in seasons two, three, or four, maybe the Black. I did that whole series on the Blackwoods. I talked everything about them. Go check it out if you want to. But there should be a much greater focus on Weirwoods. 
And they're actually it's sneakily in fire and blood as well. Like, for instance, Damon stays at Heron Hall and hangs out in the Godswood for quite a long time. There's he's also the battle over the God's Eye itself between him and Amond. And then there's also the idea, I think Adam Valarian flies to the Isle of Faces to ask the green men for help in the war. Obviously, Alice Rivers and how she uses her visions to help Amond One-Eye. And she supposedly makes a guy's head explode and chokes another one out. So there is definitely a backdrop of magic stuff going on in Fire and Blood that with this more focused look at the Targaryen family should see more, especially because as you and I, who are obsessed with these books, know the Targaryens are indistinguishable from magic. They are magic. They dragon dreams constantly invade their lives. They their ability to see prophecies and their reaction to them shaped the entire history of Westeros itself. And I forget where it was said, but I think George said somewhere that Aegon, he said this recently, that Aegon the Conqueror was motivated to conquer Westeros in response to a vision about the White Walkers. I forget where I saw that. I'm pretty sure that's a thing. So we should definitely see that as a rising part of the story, that that is the untold part of Fire and Blood, the book that we should see in House of the Dragon. And that the quotes from Eve Best to Matt Smith about their connections to their dragons are very much leaning into that. There's also, again, I talked about the Weirwood. Again, Alice Rivers should show up at some point and be very much a force of magic in it. What else is there? Oh, from the first teaser, the the with the candles around it and what looks like some kind of like ritualized thing. I don't know what that is, but that is not something that's ever been mentioned in any book anywhere that they worship the skulls in any way or that they hold like funeral rites or they pray in front of it or something like that. That is not in the books. So that is very much probably the biggest hint. And I talked about that a lot in my teaser reaction that there should be a much bigger focus on Targaryens and their relationship to, to magic. That should be a big part of the show. Yeah, I forget where I heard that. I, I could have sworn it was in an interview or something like that, or if you wrote it on a blog post. But I remember hearing that recently. But it also makes sense. Like the Targaryens were hanging out on Dragonstone for like 150 years or something like that before Aegon just up and decided to conquer. Considering Danis the Dreener is the origin story of the Targaryens getting to Westeros, it would be weird considering all the rest of the Targaryens being influenced by prophecy and dreams if Aegon wasn't. And it should be a big part of Fire of House of the Dragon. I don't know who's going to get them. Aemon One-Eye seems like a good candidate with his relationship to Alice Rivers. It'd be interesting if Viserys or Rhaenyra had them. Maybe Daemon. Like, that'd be kind of cool, too. There's also something that's going to come up later in the show. I don't think it's going to be season one based on the... Maybe it will during the timing. I f- my guess is it's going to end around the ba- the the battle the dragon battle over was it Shipwrecker Bay, I think it is. At the start of the dance, Rhaenyra sends out all of her sons to basically fly around Westeros and try and get her allies. And one of them, the most interesting one, is Jace Valarian. He makes his way north to Winterfell and he falls in love and supposedly marries Cregan Stark's bastard sister or daughter, I forget which one, Sarah Snow. And there's three different stories about what happens there, but what's not up for debate is that they sign what is called the Pact of Ice and Fire where the Targaryen and the Starks agree to support each other in this war, or at least Rhaenyra's side. Cregan holds to it, as Starks always do. And there's also a promise of a marriage that will eventually come forward. But it would be fascinating knowing the ending of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, where it will probably have something to do 
with John, Danny, and the White Walkers, if the Pact of Ice and Fire had like a secret, a secret subtext to it, that it wasn't just a marriage pact, that it wasn't a political alliance, that maybe it, the thing that connected the Starks and the Targaryens had more to do with the White Walkers. And that has to do with that quote where Kundal said that he said that George considers the Dance of the Dragons the natural succession point to or prequel point for, for the main series and how it works with the first episode. The first episode's mostly about the White Walkers. If the children are a bigger part of it and dragons and magic are a bigger part of it, the White Walkers should also be a big part of it. And it would be very strange if they ignored them entirely. So I would expect to see a lot more of that in the show, especially as the war gets further and you see the Starks enter the war and you see the Blackwoods enter the war. And especially as we see more of Hall and potentially the Isle of Faces, like what if they go to the Isle of Faces? I would love to see that. You should see the the back the the long simmering ice and fire war against with the children in the middle be a bigger part of it a super chat here from eugene ten dollars simply for the take on the valerians being black well said i'm glad to see someone in the fandom is a rational person i would have fantasy loosely based on in evil history only have white people because there's a lot of people whose fantasy is only white people shocking i know and there are a couple questions from twitter i wanted to get to so we can all go watch history of westeros and their wonderful content about ib karen of house targaryen on twitter said one actually let me make sure i didn't get any more in the meantime i'm just gonna quickly check my email and i'm gonna check twitter see if anybody added me also thank you for the super chat appreciate it eugene oh i'm getting live tweeted about my take on the coin conqueror's crown is talking about it he actually has one or they have one of the questions i don't actually know the gender identity of that person so i'm gonna say they i assume it's a male but i don't really know so karen of house targaryen what was the thing that surprised you most for good or for bad of the whole article and interview? Definitely Coralise's or Stephen Toussaint's take that he sees Coralise as more like Taiwan. That was not a sense I got from reading it. But then again, you don't, there's not a huge sense of Coralise as an individual, at least early on in the war. You see a lot more from him as it goes on. He, but he's definitely a character that plays things close to his chest where he's, he's power hungry and he wants to make his house legendary, but you don't. It's hard to get a sense of how he's doing that and what he's like on an individual level. Him being as Tywin is very interesting, and I'm kind of curious how that will come out in the acting. Also, the Weirwood being in King's Landing was a big surprise to me. I think I saw on Twitter like, oh, no, I don't think that's King's Landing. I don't think it can be. There's no Weirwood in King's Landing in the books, but then that it is. So I'm kind of excited what that change could mean for the story. I'm, I would, I'm really excited to see the magical fantasy side of House of the Dragon expand where the books didn't. That's probably the biggest place they can really expand as a, as a series and add something that's not literally in the pages. And obviously, Ryan Connell's really good rep relationship with George R. R. Martin would probably let him do that. But thank you for the question, Karen. And the other one from A Conqueror's Crown, who I just talked about, who I guess is watching right now. Questions for you. One, what was the thing that did the... Oh, I already answered that one. Two, what are your expectations about magic in House of the Dragon? I just answered that one. Too. A third question. How do you feel about zero Stark strong promotion so far? I'm furious about it. How could they leave out the Strongs, the most important family in the book, in the show, in the books? I'm, I'm just kidding. I mean, they're going to have a small role to start off with. Obviously, Harwin Strong has been cast he'll be in probably the latter half of this of the first season maybe show up during the tourneys at the beginning it's gonna and lionel strong and harwin die both die before the dance starts again spoil i'm sorry spoiler so they should both be gone by season one but it's lara strong 
and Alice Rivers, who have the biggest role of the strong family going forwards, along with obviously with Rhaenyra's, with Rhaenyra's children. So they're much more in the later seasons, kind of the rise of how strong in the story. Harwin obviously gets top billing because he's Rhaenyra's paramour, I guess, or her baby daddy. And that ends up, he doesn't have a huge role in the books in the Fire and Blood. And he probably won't in the show either. It'll be interesting to see how he and Lionel die, who actually lit that fire. I'm guessing it will be Viserys, but you never know. It may have been Larys Strong himself. But I'm not particularly upset about it there. The characters that are going to be big in season one are secondary, and they get much larger roles as it goes on. So understandable. I wish we would have gotten more out of Lionel and Harwin than we're probably going to get. But I'm excited for Laris and Alice. Also, I forget the name of them, but the Strongs that hold Harrenhal that get killed by Aemond. We're going to see a lot of those guys. Well, they're going to be turned into a little heads, which kind of sucks. And then we're going to see a lot more from Rhaenyra's sons with Harwin as the as the show goes on. Although, actually, Lucius dies. He's probably going to die this season. But we'll see more from Jace, and we're going to see a lot more from Joffrey as it goes along. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the sum total of my reaction to... Hang on a second. Let me go back to face cam here. All right. There we go, everybody. Let me grab history of actually, how am I going to do this? I have to do this without their audio playing so that I don't confuse everybody again. I tried to give history of Westeros the, 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 the redirect after the stream. So it's what it's supposed to do on Twitch. If you've ever seen somebody do a raid where when their stream ends, you, you go to watch the other one. I tried to set that up today, but I couldn't. Oh, share. Perfect. Lovely. So I'm going to go ahead and throw this to History of Westeros. I'm very sorry, you guys, that normally watch them. And also to <laughs> Aziz and Sean and Shea and Greyway's Tem, I think, is on there today. I am sorry for intruding on your normal time slot. It's only because I'm stupid, basically. That's what ended up happening there. So go check them out. There's the link to their live stream, which is ongoing right now. Oh, and also, uh, very quickly, what we're going to, what I'm planning to do for House of the Dragon in terms of coverage, I'm going to be doing a stream after every episode ends that night probably like five minutes after it ends working on if i'm gonna it's tentatively i'm gonna be doing at least one with poor clinton but i'm not sure how many of them i'm going to do with guests or not um and then later in the week there's gonna be some kind of video coming out i don't think that i don't think i can really do theories because there's not much to theorize about like the dance of the dragons is a known quantity so i maybe like magical theories or something like that maybe like reviews or explainers or something like that i don't know you guys let me know in the comments what kind of videos you would like to see from me, I guess, during House of the Dragon. Like the, after the show, it would just be a live reaction. Not quite sure what I'm going to do otherwise. Still deciding on I still got a few weeks to figure it out. Oh uh, yeah. But anyway, hope you guys have a good weekend. Enjoy History of Westeros.